burning like my blood's in a pan on a stove and it's heating me up to the max so I'm running my legs just as fast as I can to the left to the right I'm a frustrated man now I'm flicking my tiptoes to kick up the sand cause I can't understand all this fire that's raging inside me Seagulls in Hello and welcome to Filmwalk. This is Glenn. I'm here with Daniel. Hello. And tonight we're going to be reviewing a new film on, that just dropped on Netflix last weekend starring Rosamund Pike and Peter Dinklage. And that film is I Care A Lot. But first, Daniel, there's been a comedy on premium VOD for a couple of weeks here that I keep hearing interesting things about. Uh, and that comedy is from director Josh Greenbaum and uh, screenwriters and stars Annie Mumolo and Kristen Wiig. Uh, and it is called Barb and Star Go to Vista Del Mar. I'm Star. Short for Starbra. Assume yours is Barbara. Nope, just Barb. Plain old Barb. I want to thank Barb and Star for hosting tonight's Talking Club and for making their hot dog soup. I like the salt. I like the hot dog. It's not as runny as it usually is. Ah, what is she drawing? Oh, she gives me bigger teeth. Love big teeth. She loves big teeth. Even if it's just two eyes on a bunch of teeth. That was from the trailer of Barb and Star Go to Vista Del Mar, the new film from director Josh Greenbaum, and it is uh, now streaming in premium VOD and will likely find its way onto uh, the other platforms before too long. Uh, this film stars uh, Kristen Wiig and Annie Mumolo as Star and Barb, two friends from the small town of Soft Rock, Nebraska. They are divorced and widowed, respectively, and uh, they are they just want to get their shimmer back. They hear from their good friend, played by Wendy McClendon-Covey, who is always a reliable uh, comedic side performer, uh, that it's all happening down in Vista Del Mar, a fictitious town on uh, the Florida Gulf Coast. And they uh, they proceed to go there, and uh, hijinks ensue. Now, Daniel, this is a comedy, and it's a fairly madcap comedy, so I don't think we're going to be talking too much about too many specific things, except perhaps Darley Bunkle. But uh, this film is uh, one that I think you're going to know fairly quickly if you're going to like the style of humor at work. So what I will say right off the bat is stick with this film for at least the first 20 minutes or so, and it will either click really hard for you or it's uh, it'll, it'll firmly be something you're not interested in. And I am very curious where you landed on that. So I first uh, heard of this film from friend of the podcast and uh, handsome, beautiful finance manager, Jason, uh, that uh, he hated it. Uh, he and his wife. Uh, Is that right? He and his wife wanted to turn it off after the first thirty minutes, but he has a resolute determination to always finish a film, no matter how he feels about it once he starts. And like the uh, like the epic saga of the fictitious uh, Trish, did they conclude? The uh, the film did it. Uh, what did it end satisfactory for them, or did it plunge off a cliff into the ocean? You know, he when I asked him how, how he felt about it, and I when I took a a photo of my screen showing him that I was in fact also watching this film a day later, uh, he responded in all caps hate. <laughs> so I, I think that was a good a review on on his part. Fair enough. So you had his lack of affinity for it uh, on the record, but uh, did he successfully brainwash you into hating it as well? Or what did you think of the film? I didn't hate it. I appreciated that every joke they introduce has some sort of a payoff somewhere in, in the film. So I, I, I like the, I like what they were doing. I like this, the, the sense of humor. I didn't find it very funny myself. 
I, I kept count as to how many times I laughed. That oh. count was zero. I did chuckle once and I smirked three times. Uh, that That's not saying that the movie was unfunny. It was just unfunny to me. That is a scoreboard worthy of a modern first-person shooter, which keeps track of, you know, how many limb versus headshots you've registered. I am sorry to hear that you were not amused by this film. I, as soon as it became clear that we were in sort of a Tim and Eric world of anti-comedy, sort of mashed up with SNL-based character comedy, I, it was not what I was expecting, but I was fully on board with this film when that happened. Well, so... I didn't, I didn't find it that funny, but I appreciated the dynamic between Barb and Star. Their acting was quite fun, and it was, as I texted Jason, this film is mildly amusing. Uh, so I, I enjoyed Edgar, I enjoyed that whole dynamic, I liked that. Yeah, Jamie Dornan, I had no idea the man was Irish, although I suppose with that name I probably should have guessed it. Yeah. But uh, he gets to speak with his native accent here, and man, he is not just a solid comedic performer, but he is a pretty solid belter as well. The man can sing. <laughs> He can, and I like Kristen Wiig in this film as well. I think that she she was able to pull off Star. Uh, Star is, you know, maybe not relatable, but she is somewhat entertaining to watch. And, like, the hijinks, they're silly. Like, this movie's very, very silly. Normally, when I say something is silly, that means that I think it's effing stupid. But in this case, like, I mean it in the most, you know, casual and nice way. It's a silly movie. There's a silly plot involving killer mosquitoes, a fictional Florida town that's like a resort and everyone's like happy. Like, it's fine. Like, I I, I wasn't bored watching the film. I guess, I guess I watched it and I was like, this is mildly amusing. This is okay. I, I've seen versions of, of this uh, type of premise that sort of hew closer to realism and also have a uh, have sort of a more uh, grounded in reality emotional core. And that film would be something like Forgetting Sarah Marshall. Um, this was not trying to be that at all, but it wasn't entirely not trying to be that because this film announced its intentions to have a serious emotional core and be about something beyond just the silliness at work here. And that was enough to sort of it was enough to sort of make it seem like an authorial statement from Chris wig and annie mumolo who are you know in their upper 40s themselves and uh it's re- it's reasonable to uh to surmise that their thoughts on middle age may be coming out through these characters and what they had to say at the beginning of the film uh, as they're as they're chatting with each other as they um as as these these women have managed to stay friends through through some pretty horrible times uh i mean through one of them one of them losing their husband to infidelity and divorce and the other one losing her husband to uh unspecified death off screen I'm gonna go ahead and assume that uh, that maybe that guy was trampled by Dolores's horse that she loves so much. That was the that was the one time I chuckled was Dolores <laughs> was, and her horse. Yeah, shout out to Phyllis from the office. Uh, that was her, her her horse impression was spot on in that scene. But I also particularly like dictator Vanessa Bayer uh, as uh, as Debbie, who absolutely did not want any of the rules of talking club to be violated. She gets introduced when she's, uh, I think it's Claire is outside and she's arrived two minutes late, but uh, it's time to lock the doors. Talking Uh, club is serious business, man. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, If you talk about the wrong thing, they take away your soup and then they take away your tea. (laughs) Pretty, pretty gross looking soup too. Oh yeah. Like it was some sort of chowder, I think. 
Vanessa Bear is always uh, entertaining, and I only ever see her in these tiny little bit parts where she's doing these sort of disturbing with a with a grand smiley face kind of routines. That seems to be her shtick, and always enjoyable. On top of that, they lose their job at a furniture store where they where they just sit around and talk with each other all day, and. <laughs> Uh, but not but not for that. They lose it because the national chain closed eight months ago and no one bothered to tell them. <laughs> so they're just kind of figuring out what the next step in their life is. And they realize that they've lost their shimmer. They realize all their best stories are behind them. And, hey, we can still be those people again. We can still go do those things again. And, and you know, that you could you could frame this like it's a midlife crisis. But no, it's them trying to get their groove back. It's them trying to figure out what it means to still be people who like to go out and have fun in the world at an age when, uh, you know, responsibility and uh, the infirmities of age are creeping up on you. <laughs> so uh, I... You know, as somebody in his mid thirties, I found this. I found this to be emotionally resonant. I found it to be something that uh, that I could see looking forward to in my own life. While at the same time, this movie is one of the most dense, joke-filled films that I've seen. I think since Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. You mentioned that every little joke pays off, and it really felt like a, like a Phil Lord and Chris Miller kind of trope where. Even the jokes you don't think are going to be running gags often turn out to be, and that's what gives this movie such pleasure watching it. They have a long bit about coming up with a ma- making up this Trish character, yep. And I thought that was just to show how annoying they were on the airplane, uh, but it turns out that the the Trish bit pays off. So I I appreciate the movie for keeping track of all the jokes, and like you said, it's a very joke dense film. It's basically nonstop joking. So that's impressive that everything had a payoff of some kind. Well, I also, that whole sequence involving them coming up with the backstory for Trish was just them entertaining each other on the plane. And yeah, it would be pretty annoying if you were actually there for it. But obviously it's a heightened version of reality. But while I'm watching this with my wife, uh, Megan, she turns to me and says, I've totally done that uh, with, uh, and then she names one of, her, one of her friends on a road trip. But basically she found that entire sequence pretty relatable. Did you know that Kristen Wiig was also Sharon Garden Fisherman? I did know that. I was not entirely sure of it for the first few minutes that she was on screen. Also, I did. I don't think I ever heard the name Sharon Gordon Fisherman spoken aloud in the film. Uh, in the closed captions, uh, she was referred to as Doctor Lady. She's sort of doing a Mike Myers in Austin Powers kind of shtick here, where she's playing both the hero and the villain. Yeah. Uh, v- very clear inspiration there. This character is pale. Uh, has weird hair in the front and the back, but like weird in different ways. Like there's, and and basically operates out of a lair where uh, this uh, she has this child that just hangs out there plotting evil with her. Yeah, Yo Yo is solid. Yo 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 is a solid henchman. Yeah, played by the uh, played by an actor named Rain Doy, and yeah, he's very funny. She employs Edgar, who is meant to be involved in this plot to unleash deadly mosquitoes on this town, which is just the ending that every town in Florida deserves, honestly. I mean, they already have killer mosquitoes down in Florida. It's called Zika. Oh, yeah. The the CDC literally existed as a malaria-controlling agency that was just, like, spraying for mosquitoes. That was how they got started. I was going to say, like, I did not know that Kristen Wiig was also playing the villain. Oh, you didn't? Okay. It, it took it, – it was most of the film until I was like, oh, is that is that Kristen Wiig? Because I was trying to figure out who, who that was. And I was like, I don't recognize that actress. She seemed a little bit unreal the entire time she was on screen, and I couldn't quite pinpoint why. Um, I thought maybe they were ADRing all of her dialogue that she had recorded it separately in a studio and voiced over for this character, but I'm not I'm not sure if that was correct. She very much did not look like herself and was doing kind of a diabolical character voice. 
And that character gets a backstory, and both Barb and Star get backstories. Edgar gets a backstory, and the backstory montages that happen here are also just extended visual gags, and I I really appreciated them. I don't know what else to say about this film except that it worked really well for me. I I actually rewatched the first half of it today just to refresh myself, and I was amazed how many more jokes I picked up on that I had not that I'd either not noticed or not thought of the first time. Stuff where characters are sort of talking in whispers on a, on opposite ends of the same scene that are happening, and uh, there might be there might be multiple funny lines happening at the same time, and it just depended which one I was focusing on. Yeah, there, there there's like you said, it's very dense with jokes. Uh, I, I have to say the ending I thought was a little sweet. You know, it's all about friendship. Well, of course it is. They accept fishermen, you know, despite that she just tried to kill them. And I, I thought it was I thought it was cute. Yeah, th- there are a couple of pretty awesome cameos uh, toward the end as well. And I, I don't want to spoil who those are. It's two fairly famous actors show up um, as uh, well <laughs> as as this and that. But um, actually, uh, no, actually, three fairly famous actors show up. Come to think of it. Yeah, one is a uh, one is a country music star. Yeah, <laughs> but not going to get any more specific than that. Um, I found this movie very pleasant. It gets real madcap and silly uh, toward the end, but like the conflict that they are dealing with of can they get their shimmer back? Can they find uh, what they what they want to do next with their lives? You know, do they need to be separated from each other to do that? Can they do it in a way that's not going to interfere with each other's lives? You know, those those sort of conflicts ran through even as the jokes were still coming hard and fast. And I appreciated that. You know, it sort of keeps the entire movie grounded in the same emotional core the whole time. It tethered everything together so that while you have all the zangy jokes and, and, and you know, silly antics, there's still that one thread that makes <laughs> makes it coherent. Uh, and I think that that's really, really important because this movie could easily just gone off the rails and just been like impossible to watch because like it would just be like a series of just unrecognizable, ridiculous, uh, ridiculous nonsense. And it's not. Yeah. And I saw I saw that movie. That one was called Broken Lizards Club Dread. And it's uh, while, while it is a better than average Bill Paxton performance, rest in peace. But uh, that was a comedy about let's all go to a resort and be silly with each other from the creators of Super Troopers. And that was a movie that also didn't it didn't care to have an emotional core or a coherent through line. It was just joke after joke after joke. And that is where that sort of thing doesn't work. You need some reason for us to give a shit about all of this. I credit the movie for having that and for having the wherewithal to to make sure that, that was always in the forefront, despite all the craziness. Yeah, well, I, mean, I, uh, I don't think we're going to get into spoilers for this. I think that uh, there is there are a couple of pretty outstanding musical numbers in this that I will probably end up trying to use some of in, uh, along with the episode. But man, uh, Jamie Dornan's musical number in particular is really something special. It's pretty good. Um, yeah, it, it's it's hokey, but it is supposed to be hokey. It's very literally rendered. It's it's very funny. Was there a joke that stuck with you after watching the film that you're, you're still thinking about right now? Oh, God, multiple ones. Like, the comparison to Phil Lord and Chris Miller is not made lightly. Like, um, those, the sort of running jokes are the ones that stick with you because you you think about them over, uh, you think about them when the movie's over and you think about all the different ways in which they came up or were surprising. Like, the whole Trish thing turns out to be important. Right. But also, some of the, some of the sort of zany characters, Vanessa Bear, I already mentioned, Phyllis from, uh, from The Office, that's uh, Phyllis Smith. Um, but also, uh, Richard Cheese has a running gag. Uh, this is Richard Cheese of The Lounge Against the Machine shows up and, he, and all of his songs are about boobies. <laughs> That they are the man. The man likes his boobies. 
uh, and just so many boob puns. And uh, yeah, Kwame Peterson plays George the George the bartender who's got a like a drink of death, and it's it's kind of amazing what that turns out to be. Yeah, did you open the treasure? Damon Wayans Jr. plays the world's worst undercover agent. That's all I'm going to say about him. But for for a character that thin, very solid performance. Damon Wayans Jr. always a pleasure to see in a comedy. I believe he was on New Girl. Then he wasn't. Then he was again, if I remember right. Yes, he was there for like episode one of season one, and then they I think they recast him shortly after that, and then he shows up in the last season. Yeah, which I believe was a scheduling conflict. I think he was going to be on some some cop show, and then he ended right, up right. So. Yeah, it wasn't like oh he's terrible, let's recast him. It was a, yeah, no, it was very scheduling. he was funny in the pilot. I I did see that one, but uh, but yeah, he's very funny here as well though. The whole but there's not much to that character, but he's just very funny. Uh, Darley Bunkle, uh, Rain Doy as Yo-Yo as well, uh, is, is always good. There are just a bunch of really funny side characters in this, uh, as well, which you always like to see in something where the screenwriters are also the stars. They don't keep the focus on themselves a hundred percent of the time. There's quite a lot going on here and you get to see all of it. So sorry you didn't enjoy it, uh, Jason I, and Chelsea. That was, well, uh, don't, I, don't, they're, they're artsy fartsy types. Like the fact that it wasn't about some social issue that probably ruined it for them. <laughs> I I find that stuff important too, but I still enjoy just a madcap fucking comedy sometimes, and that's what this was. So, uh, yeah, Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar, now available on uh, premium VOD. Daniel, any final thoughts about the film? You know, now now I've talked about it with you. Like I think I didn't hate it. Like, I don't, I don't want to come across like I I just like the film. I didn't think it was funny, but I still appreciated it for what it was. The one joke for me that stuck stuck through was uh, when um, Sharon Gordon Fisherman, our, our villainess, uh, leaves a voicemail to Edgar as she uh, f- uh, finishes it with a kiss with tongue. That's a solid joke. That one stuck with me. Yeah, and I mean, the emotional core there is obviously that he wants to be an official couple with her. Yes. And uh, and the the question of you know whether this guy even understands what real romance is after being just sort of taken in by this weird predatory uh, relationship for all these years. And the man just wants to go steady with someone. Yeah, exactly. He just he he is not good at being single. I corrected uh, something that I had misunderstood here. So. I mentioned that there were cameos with a couple of famous actors here. I thought that Morgan Freeman actually showed up as the, uh, let's just say, a creature named Morgan Freeman, um, who appeared. Did you forget what Morgan Freeman looks like? That was that was not actually Morgan Freeman voicing that character. That was just a very good impression oh, named, really? jo- named Josh Robert Thompson, oh, right on. Uh, who apparently who apparently has done his impression for Morgan Freeman on uh, on Craig Ferguson or somebody like that. I'm finding on YouTube here. But yeah, it's a uh, it's a very good impression. I literally thought it was... I thought it was the same one too. Yeah, same guy. Like, very, very well, very well done. Yeah, he's a 45-year-old white dude from Cleveland. But yeah, he does a very good Morgan Freeman. So there you go. I would say for those that are on the fence of seeing a film like this, it's lighthearted and it honestly goes pretty fast. So I, I, I think like just... Just watch it and decide for yourself what you think about uh, like humor like this. It's not going to resonate for everybody, but for what it was, it's well done. 
Yeah, I mean, I I can't recommend Tim and Eric's billion dollar movie to everyone, and I wouldn't necessarily recommend this to everyone either. You need to enjoy a kind of silly comedy that is occasionally just being being weird just for the sake of it. All the stuff involving Talking Club was quite purposefully off-putting, and it has some very talented comedians involved to make it purposefully off-putting. Um, there's a lot of that in this film, a lot of try, a lot of sort of trying to make you cringe. So if that's not your bag, totally understand. But this totally worked for me. Well, that brings us to the end of our discussion of Barb and Star Go to Vista Del Mar. If you have any feedback, feel free to email us at filmwonknet at gmail.com. And now on to our review of I Care A Lot. Marla Grayson, you've had amazing success. What's your secret? There is no secret, Peter. She forces them into the home, auctions off their house, and uses the proceeds to pay herself. Because caring is my job. I will grab your dick and balls, and I will rip them clean off. I know what you do here, your hustle. Look at all these cash cows on your wall just leaking money into your account. But Jennifer Peterson, she's off limits. She has very powerful friends who can make life uncomfortable for you. How uncomfortable are we talking? That was from the trailer of I Care A Lot, the new film from writer-director Jay Blakeson, starring Rosamund Pike, Peter Dinklage, Aiza Gonzalez, Chris Messina, and Diane Weist. This film uh, features Rosamund Pike as a character named Marla Grayson, who is a professional... Uh, who is a professional court-appointed guardian for the elderly who are deemed by a family court to be incompetent to manage their own affairs. And this allows this woman to show up at their door with no warning for a, as the result of a court hearing that was held without notifying them and without them being present to tell them, hey, you don't live here anymore. Uh, and showing up with her uh, with her goon squad to come uh, come pack him off to an old folks home and uh, immediately start inventorying the belongings to, uh, to be auctioned off to pay for their care. So, uh, Daniel, I'm going to stop right there with that premise because what I want to know from you is going into this film, did you know that what I just described was a real thing? I did. I did not know how insidious and uh, common this was. This film seems to be, and I, I don't know for sure what the creatives behind this film based this on, but it seems to be based on a real person. It's different enough, and obviously it goes in enough direct. There's a whole Russian mafia element that did not exist in real life, obviously. But if you read the article in the New Yorker magazine uh, from 2017 called How the Elderly Lose Their Rights, and this is by Rachel Aviv, it's a feature that is all about this case. And this was written after the, the woman uh, who's at the center of that case, April Parks, was in indicted for it um so suffice to say going into this film what you should know is that regardless of where this film goes what happened to the person that this is based on in real life is she is about to be serving a 40-year prison sentence that is the starting point uh here but i I did not know that detail going in i just knew that this was i I immediately recognized the premise of this film as something that had happened in real life um in the state of nevada uh, a number of people were taken under uh, hundreds of of uh, elderly folks were taken under the uh, the court-appointed guardianship of this woman. And uh, this film largely presents a scenario that is similar to this. It is a professionalized kind of scenario. She has an entire firm of people who have clearly done this before. When we see her first pulling this routine on on someone, uh, it's all very well rehearsed. It's all very well practiced. It all 
it all has the hallmarks of well-practiced abuse. They get the phones out of the hands of those people immediately. The care homes are in on it, and they're given kickbacks. The doctors are in on it. Like, that whole sort of racketeering element of it is obviously a bit speculative. It's not the sort of thing where those parties involved were uh, were ever were ever proven uh, to have done any wrongdoing in real life. But that is how this film presents it as this is a very slickly run criminal enterprise and it's designed to take all of these assets from all of these old people and convert them into cash and hand them over to complete strangers uh over often over the objections of their family members or their next of kin if they even exist uh and what uh what somebody is known as if they are rich and have no next of kin is a cherry uh, someone who is ready to be plucked. And that is what we have here at the beginning of this film. We have uh, Marla Grayson taking on a woman named Jennifer Peterson, played by Diane Weist. Her partner, and I should say it's it's her business partner as well as her romantic partner, Fran, uh, played by uh, Aza Gonzalez, uh, does a deep background check on this woman and cannot find any living relatives and finds that she seems to have a very substantial net worth. And they realize, okay, this is someone that we can target with our grift and, uh, and take into our care. And it turns out that uh, she has connected up the wazoo with the Russian mafia. So that is uh, that's kind of the setup from the, from the beginning here. So, Daniel, what did you think of this film? What did you think of uh, Rosamund Pike and Peter Dinklage's performances in it? And uh, what does it all add up to for you? I thought the tone was baffling. I was very confused why the film was pushing me so hard to want to root for, you know, uh, Marla Grayson as a, some sort of anti-hero when she's clearly a horrible villain. I didn't understand why the movie was trying to make her into some sort of girl boss. I didn't buy it. I wasn't invested in the character. I wasn't invested in Marla Grayson's story. And the grift, she's just horribly abusive. And I don't know why the movie thought that a slick presentation was going to convince me that that was okay. Though I kind of root for her to fight the system. I quite enjoyed Rosamund Pike's performance. To answer your second point, she basically did the same character in Gone Girl. And she's very, very good at it. And Peter Dinklage is always a joy to see in anything. So him as a Russian, you know, mafia uh, mobster... Cool. I'm into it. <laughs> as Roman... Uh, what was it? Roman Lunoff? Uh, yeah, Roman Lunyov. Yeah, Lunyov. Uh, yeah, like... Like, great. Peter Dinklage is a Russian mobster. I'm, I'm on board. There's a detail of Peter Dinklage's performance here that this character is frequently eating or drinking something in a scene, and by the end of that scene, whatever he's eating or drinking will be thrown at someone in anger, and it's very entertaining every time it happens. Yeah, every time he throws a smoothie at somebody's head, that's definitely a high mark for the scene. Well, when somebody's in a business meeting with, like, an underling, and they're just, like, loudly eating their lunch, they just look like an asshole. Like, he's not chewing on an apple to be an asshole, but he's, like, one step removed from that, and it's great. And like Rosamund Pike, I, I quite enjoyed Peter Dinklage's performance. His character, he just wants his mom back. Yeah, but he's also a violent psychopath. Well, he's also a human trafficker. So, like, there was an yeah. element that I thought the movie was going to go into, uh, go the route of, here's traditional organized crime versus here's the new wave of organized crime. Who's going to win? Old guard or new guard? But they don't really go that route. It's like, it's kind of very loosely, like, presented that way. It's more of like, you kind of, you see it, 
But it's not really, uh, the movie wasn't interested in exploring that. Yeah, I mean, every mafia movie that I've ever seen has some character remarking that uh, the cops and the politicians are the crookedest gang in town. And we, we, you know, we we couldn't steal as much as them if we uh, worked our entire lives at it. And like, it's always kind of a throwaway line because it's treated as something that we all implicitly know is true. So it's not something that the movie troubles to make much of a connection to. But I I would agree with you, it was trying to make that connection uh, in a way that becomes increasingly apparent over the course of the film what was your third question what does it all mean so i did not like this film i came away not really enjoying it uh for a variety of reasons but i read that article by uh rachel aviv uh, from 2017 in the new yorker like you just mentioned and i was just horrified (laughs) because one, I didn't realize that this grift was really that insidious. Like, I, I heard that, like, some guardians, like, would, would abuse their power. And I'm like, okay, well, that's, you give anybody too much control over somebody's life, it's rife for abuse. But the systematic nature in which, you know, uh, what was her name, April Parks, you know, went about it and how she destroyed those people's lives and how she, like, basically rendered them into a husk of their former selves as she isolates them from her family and bilks yeah. them for all their money, seizing all their momentum, or their, seizing their assets, seizing, like, the, the things that they really value in life, including, in one case, like, somebody's pets, and just getting rid of them. Like, she's a horrible monster, and Marla Grayson in this film is a horrible monster. Yeah, I had occasion once to watch the 2019 documentary uh, The Guardians by uh, director Billy Mintz, and I ended up turning it off after about 20 minutes because it became apparent what it was going to be about, and it's basically about the same subject matter as that uh, that New Yorker article, and I was just like, I already read the like 4,000-word version of this. I don't want to read this story again. I don't want to be steeped in it. I want it to be illegal. I want this practice to go away, but I don't want to spend the next 90 minutes reliving that. Yeah. So I was a little wary going into this film that it was going to be something along those lines, uh, especially because the tweet that drew me to seeing this film was uh, was local film critic uh, David Chen from uh, Slash Film making an observation very similar to the one that you had uh, reacting to this film. Uh, I care a lot. Netflix. Woo boy. Super slick and engrossing flick. Love seeing Dinklage go full baddie and Rosamund Pike keep being gone girl but holy shit did this movie completely 100% absolutely positively totally misunderstand who I was rooting for in this story yeah I agree with David Chen I found that to be a very tantalizing tweet and I had to see as soon as I learned what this movie was about I had to uh to learn more but um there's a certain amount of of charm that Rosamund Pike brings to this role that had me not rooting for the character, but just wanting to see where this performance goes. Uh, I mean, there's a scene where she's lined up with Chris Messina, and Chris Messina is playing your typical slick mafia lawyer uh, who is he trying was, to get the situation resolved through uh, through handshake deals in back rooms with like a briefcase full of money. And when that fails, he ends up going to court, and he's completely outmatched there. I love that as he's hollering to Roman about why this failed, he says the judge is a fucking idiot. He drives a Subaru <laughs> as Roman is like hurtling a shake at him but the scene that that takes place right before that first of all they're initially talking all nicely to each other but they dispense with that very very quickly um dean uh dean erickson who is this uh, this mob lawyer uh shows up at marla grayson's office gets into a meeting with him and they very quickly are just like you know let's cut the shit this this woman uh jennifer peterson is very important to my employers and they want her they want her out of there right now and there's a moment where Marla, with just a gigantic fucking smile on her face, says, 
Dean, I have a legal duty. Jennifer Peterson is in need of my protection. And I cannot even come close to matching Rosamund Pike's performance in that moment. But it's just an I know this isn't true and fuck you kind of connotation to what she's saying. And I found moments like that pretty entertaining, even though I found the character's actions horrific. And there, there was a lot of that throughout the film. That said, I was not rooting for her for one single moment. I was waiting for her to be killed by the mafia at any given time. And I was kind of what I was rooting for over the course of this was, I want this to blow up spectacularly in her face and for her entire corrupt empire to go crashing down. And I, the, the, the film reminded me a little bit of Breaking Bad. I think there's a version of this movie where we maybe see her becoming this person, where I think we would have an easier time rooting for her as she becomes more and more monstrous. Or at least, like, identifying a little bit with her, right? Yeah, that's something where I think that TV has a bit of an advantage when it comes to setting up an anti-heroic character like this, because you can create, you can start them off as somebody that we can relate to, and then you can just make them less and less relatable through their actions over the course of, you know, four or five seasons, which is what they did with Walter White. And of course, the process of all of that happening is very entertaining to watch play out. This, she starts off as a monster, and we see her, uh, she gets little bits of dialogue, I, I should note, written by a male screenwriter, talking about sexism in the world, and talking about men who have threatened her, and how they almost never mean it, and if you ever threaten me again, I'll rip your dick and balls off, she literally says to one guy. And there were a number of moments like that where she, either solo or with her girlfriend on screen there, is talking about how, you know, it's a man's world and she needs to she needs to hustle, she needs to be monstrous to succeed. You know, fair play is a joke that, that rich people tell to keep the rest of us fucking poor. And, like, the whole classism and sexism element of this, I get that that's a story that this character is meant to be telling to herself about why she's doing this. Like, I get there's a level of self-awareness about that in the script of this film, but... I really don't think it landed. I, I think that uh, it played like the movie wanted me to root for this character, and it did not earn it. I'm with you on that. This character is doing monstrous things, and I want them to stop from the moment we learn what they are. <laughs> she keeps referring to herself as a lioness, and yeah. she's not. She's a parasite. But Amanda Nunes is a lioness, the current bantamweight and featherweight champion of the UFC. That person's a lioness. Marla Grayson's a fucking parasite. <laughs> The movie Parasite? Uh, no, well... Which movie did you like better between these two? Ooh, uh, probably Parasite? Oh, fair enough. Daniel is a fan of Parasite. I did not say that. Down. Actually, so, speaking of that, a friend of the podcast, Jason, liked this film and accused me of not appreciating female villains as why I didn't like the film. I think that that is a fair feeling to interrogate, but... I think that it doesn't quite work uh, in this case because, first of all, Rosamund Pike has an example within living memory of a, f uh, of a female villain who completely 1,000% worked, and that was her character in Gone Girl. Right. Well, also, if, if we recall, the bold, the corrupt, and the beautiful, that had a female villain, and I thought that was fantastic. It feels very unseemly for us two dudes to be trying to establish our feminist bona fides here, but I think that what we need to acknowledge is, yes, there is a certain amount of resistance to uh, to uh, female villains, but also it's... I, I mean, I think if you're going to go the hashtag feminism route with this, it's that women are as capable of monstrous acts as men are. For sure. Full stop. And, and, you know, this is based on a real character of a woman who did a number of these very same things, not to the point of actually murdering people, which is kind of where you feel like this character, like you just wonder what she's been up to off screen, that she's willing to, to sort of traffic in human flesh to, to this degree. But, but still, you know, it's, it's a, it's a believable character. It's just not one that I have any desire to root for because of her characteristics. And you can't really root for Roman either because he's 
a human trafficker and drug dealer. They make a point of establishing that line early on. They could have made his mob his mob history nice and nebulous. They could have just said he was a generic bad guy who right. wants his mama back. Uh, but they didn't do that. They were like, this guy is still in the business. He's trafficking in like underage girls over the border and drugs over the border. So we want him to fail too. We want these two to destroy each other. So... But I found I found the process of waiting for those two to destroy each other pretty engrossing. So even th- even though I was not rooting for anyone in this film, I still was totally into the movie. I thought it's a very slick movie. It's very interestingly shot. There's the camera's always moving. The pace of the plot is always moving. There's this electronic score in the background. Uh, by let's see who did the score here. I don't I don't have I don't have the composer here, but it's a uh, it's a very it's. It really kept me engaged uh, in a way that I wasn't expecting, as, as, I, as I hated every character on screen. I found where the movie went in the third act obnoxious. I felt that uh, Marla was too good at everything that she was doing, and it got to the point where I was just actively disengaged with the film. Because obviously she's like, obviously the things are going to work out for her, so why do I care? Like, I, I think we can talk more. I think we should talk more about that in spoilers. Right, 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 I'm going right. to hold off any, any further thoughts on that right now. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm inclined to agree. The movie gets a bit ridiculous in the third act. Well, shall we? Shall we go ahead and get into it? Then? I think we. I think we have to. All right. Well, Daniel, any final thoughts before we get into spoilers? Boy, this this film was uh, pretty divisive. I have to say that if a guardian showed up to my house and said, "You're coming with me," I'm not going to put their head through a car window. <laughs> So I think that's the appropriate response to somebody trying to do that to you or to your parents. Yeah, I mean, you call your lawyer immediately or you uh, you call, you know, you, you call the police yourself to, to confirm or you call your family members to let them know what's happening. But like these are vulnerable people and that's mm-hmm. how it's presented in the film is that these people are going along to get along. And in the in the case of one of the first people that we see there, uh, Marla literally has the cops with her. Um, that apparently is a bit of an exaggeration from the from the article uh, from the New Yorker. Uh, April Parks would merely threaten to call the police and right. comply, and and old and you know old folks don't want to get in trouble with the law. So uh, there, and, and really that's true of anyone over thirty, pretty much. Yeah, you, you threaten people with legal consequences, they'll 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 mosey along. But uh, yeah, it's uh, I will be curious to see. If there's a dividing line between people who knew that this was a thing going into the movie and people who did not, because I saw a number of people reacting on film Twitter to this movie as if they they just thought it was kind of a nihilistic display of what's the most horrible thing that somebody could do to an old person. And that this was just some screenwriter's fevered imagination. of, <laughs> so, of Yeah, someone has made it up. Yeah. Like, no, 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 this happens. This happens a lot, actually. I think there are times where it goes to an exaggerated place, but not in the ways that I think people realize watching it. So I wonder if, so if you go into the movie, not knowing what guardianship is or that any of this is, uh, is real, apparently it's a real old concept in common law of the state taking on the role of, uh, of, I yeah, mean, it's, it's from, it's from the monarchy. Yeah. Like That's a role that has been retained in state laws, uh, ever since going back to English common law. So, uh, I was very surprised to see how far back that goes, but, uh, cause it's the sort of thing that makes sense when you're talking about children with no parents, but it's not, it's the sort of thing that, it's a bit more of a leap to understand that happening to people who are who don't have all their cognitive faculties in, uh, in intact, and people who uh, people who are elderly and any overlapping groups thereof. So it, it it doesn't immediately click that this is an obvious and real scenario that can and has happened. And I think that people who go into the movie not knowing that are just going to be like, "Why the fuck did you tell this story? This is demented." Well, I've also seen some people just say, "Well, it's just bad people doing bad things." So I just found it entertaining. 
I think that bad people doing bad things lands a lot. Like you can compare this movie to the likes of The Wolf of Wall Street, which is also a movie about bad people doing bad things. But it's bad people doing bad things on Wall Street, where we kind of assume that all of this is happening. So I, I don't know. I think people can get morally shocked when they learn of an outrage that they didn't know about before. And when it's presented in a like darkly comedic way, like this movie tries to present this, I think that people can get really put off by the tone. So that is my guess as to why some people did not connect with this movie in that way but i i don't know it i found this movie engaging but it's also a little bit ridiculous all right well i think we got to get into spoilers to uh, talk about why so from here on out spoilers for i care a lot so uh daniel First of all, before we go any farther, uh, Diane Weist's performance is also one to enjoy in this film as uh, Jennifer Peterson. It was good. I just wanted to see more of her. Yeah, I mean, well, she, you know, she's the MacGuffin for most of the plot, but there's a great scene with her and Marla where Marla basically tells her, you know, do what you want to me. Like, I, like we don't know what she's been through. We don't know what she's been through as a mafia parent, but like... Mafia moms are, she... are the hardest working moms in showbiz. Indeed. And this is after, like, literally a shootout has happened inside of the old folks' home, and, like, a couple of Roman's goons have been killed, and the security guard has been killed. And Marla says, Jennifer, listen to me carefully. I don't lose. I won't lose. I'm never letting you go. I own you, and I will drain you of your money, your comfort, and your self-respect. Not because I want to, not because I'll enjoy it, or because I plan for it, but because your people didn't play by the rules. You want to beat me? Well, come at me fair and square. You get me in a courtroom. You outplay me. You don't bring guns into a care home. You don't murder one of my friends. They've killed her doctor friend at this point. Uh, This is your life now, Jennifer. You're just another old lady in a care home with dementia, with incontinence, with arthritis, with no one except me. Jennifer, or whoever the hell you really are, you're going to die in here alone and in terrible pain. Now, right off the bat, I thought that this was her abandoning her dismissal of fair play as a trick that the wealthy invent to laugh at us poor people, but... She's doing a bit here. She's putting on she's putting on a show so that Jennifer will take a fucking swing at her. And she does so in front of the cameras. And that is enough to get her moved to a secure psychiatric facility where Roman is going to have an even harder time getting her untangled legally from what has happened to her. And I have to say, watching the watching the film, this is where I began to appreciate Marla's villainous chops. Because I thought she was totally outmatched and naive here, that she was dismissing the amount of violence. Like, these guys are going to come over to your house and kill you. Like, that's the reality of what's going to happen here. But, you know, at this point in the film, not only is she getting, she's getting the uh, the buried treasure of this old lady moved somewhere where legally she can't be touched, where it's practically harder to get to her. But also, she's got safe houses. She's got all these other properties from all these other people in her thrall where she can hide out. Like, she's she's got maneuvers, and all of that kind of worked for me. Like, that was not where I got to the point where you were talking about where her plan just seemed a little bit too perfect, like almost saw-level complexity. And that is what I think we need to talk about here. So at what point did you start to lose the thread of her plan? When Roman kidnaps her and interrogates her, and she not only is calm, cool, and collect but she has witty repartee, you know, to, to fight back. I was like, the mafia would just shoot you. Yeah, there are multiple scenes where characters leave other ca- where where she is left to die or other characters are right. left to die, but, they, but not in a way that ever completes the action. They beat up Fran, and then they leave her in an apartment rig to explode, but they leave her there for long enough for Marla, who has escaped her own near-death situation, right, to, be fine. To, to, to make it back, rescue her, and get her out of there. 
And then the thing just explodes right behind them. Like, how long must it have taken for her to get out of that? It, it was a flooded quarry. And actually, I think it might have even been the same quarry that uh, that her erstwhile cinematic husband, Ben Affleck, uh, was, uh, was present for when he directed the movie uh, Gone Baby Gone. There's a scene involving a switcheroo involving somebody going into a quarry in that film as well. And both of these movies were shot in the outskirts of Boston. So uh, it's not impossible that it was literally the same. It's the, the movie same quarry. Scene, two different movies. But uh, yeah, any swimming hole that you can jump off a cliff into is uh, is good for cinema. So she gets kidnapped. She not only has uh, repartee, but she's also kind of nihilistically not afraid of death. She's like, uh, she's like, aren't you? He's like, aren't you afraid of death? And she's like, what do you think of the events of 1807? I don't care because I wasn't there either. I'm not going to be there after I die either. I'm like, well, that's very fucking zen of you. But like, you should be afraid of death when it's staring you in the face. You're not that much of a cold-blooded bastard. I mean, what Roman should have done was shrug his shoulders and then put a bullet between her eyes. Yeah, as soon as he didn't do that, I started to lose any faith that this was going to end badly for him. Um, but did you did you did you see this playing out the way it did? Because I thought she was just going to kill him, and that was going to be the end, and then get away with it, and then keep doing her stick. She talks about like take me on in the courtroom. That's like that's my layer, right? I have the layer actions there. And then well, every she... every word of that speech turned out to be a lie within the scene. So I'm not sure how much we can read into her into her strategy. For okay, that. but like all of a sudden. Now she can uh, get out of a near-death experience. She can negotiate with the mob. She can, like, dispatch people in hand-to-hand combat, you know, with the help of a taser. You know, she comes up with this bizarre plan to, like, strip uh, Roman naked, leave him to die of exposure, only for a uh, jogger in this remote-as-fuck place just so so happen to happen upon him. And she could take over as his guardian. Like... It was just like, I, at that point, I was air miming jerking off, right? I was like, oh so, my goodness, like this movie thinks it's so clever and it's really not. I'm going to give the movie a little bit of credit here that I, because I think there is a detail of this plan that you might have missed. And that is that her, her partner, Fran, I think was an ex-cop. Um, that was what was heavily implied by her, at least her interactions with the other cop when the two of them go in to, to give statements on the shooting that play, played out at the old folks' home. The sergeant, the lieutenant, whoever, whoever Frankie. they were interacting with, spoke to Fran as if she was speaking to a former colleague. And that was the reaction I got there. But also, Fran was her investigator. Fran was the one who was looking into people's backgrounds and making arrangements and kind of wheeling and dealing behind the scenes. So as a plot device, Fran being present to help set some of these things up makes sense. Oh, also, Fran took a part in a takedown. She ends up like throwing a. She ends up like pulling a shirt over a guy's head and disarming him, and then like putting him on the ground like a cop. So they really sold that aspect of her character over the course of the film. But uh, so that that is where I think that some of that might have been plausible. That said, it was equally likely that they would have just left him and and he would have died. That was definitely a possible outcome of their plan. So were they just kind of hoping for the best case scenario of we can take this guy's money as well as kill him? Right. I, I, no, I, I didn't miss. I didn't miss that point that, that Fran or Frankie, as the the sergeant called her, uh, was a former cop. Like that, that's what I assumed. It heavily implied, anyway. They never flat out say it, but that's that's the vibe I got from yeah. her. So, I guess I, it, it all it all falls together too easily. And she's a monster, and we can't we like just because she's fighting the mob doesn't mean I'm suddenly going to forget the fact of like what her whole grift is, which is. 
harming old people. Yeah, and she's not fighting the mob. She's fighting this one particular mobster for her own ends. And, like, somebody else will take over for that guy on all the crime stuff. So, like, she's not doing a service to the world by doing this. I'm with you. I, th- I think we have to introduce the real hero in this film. And that's Felstrom. <laughs> yeah, Felstrom gets the job done. So he's the one who... His name, uh, as I refer to him as Hat Guy... Uh, Hat Guy says some mean things to Marla because the movie definitely wants to identify and root for Marla. And I thought if that were my mom, what I was barred from seeing, who is now in this home where I, where I don't know how she's being treated, I'm probably going to say some mean things too. Yeah, I mean, we see what happened with Feldstrom, that he, he went into the old folks' home to try and see his mom, and he was not allowed to get past the lobby, and like they were ready for him. And then right after that scene, we, we see him... Like there's a very quick there's a very quick progression of events here. In the opening sequence, we see him in without any sound, without any diegetic sound, as sort of the opening music is playing. We see him trying to get into the old folks' home and getting wrestled out of there, um, and then we see him confront Marla in the parking lot, and we see that a she has his mother locked up in there and won't let him see her, and b we we start to learn the degree to which the f- the facility staff there are complicit in what she is doing. So I started off. Like, yeah, it's unseemly what this guy said to her, but, like, he's got a legitimate grievance here. <laughs> and uh, and then she comes back at him with, like, hey, you know, you can't you can't do that, and I'll rip your dick and balls off if you try, basically. <laughs> right. Pause. Pause for applause. Yeah, but at the same time, you know, her dismissal of threats of violence against her comes off as increasingly naive as the film goes on. And I, and I was wondering if, I mean, do you think that the movie was trying to play that as naivete, that, that, uh, that her being naive even as the Russian mob has her fucking tied up about to put a bullet in her head and she's laughing in their faces and making jokes. Do you think that we were meant to be afraid that she was going to get a bullet in the head right there? No, like, no. I, I was never afraid that that was how the scene was going to end. I, no, it, it was meant to show how cool and badass she was. Yeah, I think you're I think you're right about that. And, you know, it's like a Jack Bauer kind of moment. Like, you're never worried about Jack making it out of there okay. Like Right, he's Jack Bauer. Yeah, or or you know, it's Black Widow. She's gonna kick flip her way out of the chair and take out all the armed people right. around her. Like we've we've seen versions of this before, but not in a movie that's sort of grounded in reality like this. So yeah, I, I don't think that aspect of it landed all that well. But um, but yeah, I don't know the the whole uh, the whole empire that gets built in the last five minutes of this film. I think that that was explicitly the movie going into. Well, here's the message of the movie territory. We're gonna criticize capitalism writ large. Um, what did you think of all that that detail? I mean, it was everything Marl wanted, so it, it, it kind of makes sense that if, if new grift meets old crime, together they could be unstoppable in a capitalist society. I liked the scene that set that moment up between Dinklage and Pike, where... Yes, that was really, well acted. Yeah, they're, I mean, they're really... The way that he talks about, like, I, I respect and am terrified by what drives you. Basically, I recognize that you're one of me, a complete sociopath. <laughs> Uh, and then they decide to go to bu- to go into business together and and just sort of patch up everything that happened in this movie. He gets his mom back. Uh, they're not fighting over diamonds anymore. They're fight. They're going after the bigger dollars. They're going after the entire country. Yeah, they're they're gonna mass incarcerate old people and steal their money. Yep, and and leave them to die, doped up and alone. I think that that aspect of it landed pretty well because the whole the whole idea of her being given these gl- this sort of glowing press coverage in business journalism, um, you know, top forty under forty, and you know, female CEO just cares too much. Like, I think that was an that was an aspect where it brought in the sort of gender dynamics of the situation a bit more explicitly. That this is a character that I think the press would the business press would fawn over. 
uh, and sort of fall for hook, line, and sinker, a la Theranos. Oh, uh, yeah, Theranos, uh, yeah. Holmes. So I, I think, and, I, and again, I think very deliberate choices on the movie's part here. Right before Feldstrom shoots. But Ben Feldstrom, the paladin of the moment. And, you know, and he should have like a bigger gun. I, th- I think him just having like a little like a nine mil was kind of lackluster. He should have blown her the fuck away. So Feldstrom, the hero of the film. Played by the actor Macon Blair. Yeah, who reveals that his mother died alone and doped up. And he never got to see her because of Marla. And he shoots her in the heart. And she's dying. And then Frank is like sobbing. I'm like, none of this is earned. I don't care. He should have put a cap in Fran too. I mean, the whole, my mom died alone. I was never able to see her uh, in an old folks home kind of. This movie obviously did not know while it was being shot that there would be a pandemic where a lot more people could relate to that feeling of their elderly loved ones dying alone. But uh, just an inadvertent moment of sympathy and of sympathetic rage on that guy's behalf Mm -hmm. at what has been inflicted upon him. Again, not the movie's fault, but uh, but I think somewhat the movie's fault because it's still trying to make us root for this character, even as she's creating an empire of sin. So right. Well, Daniel, that's about all. That's about all I got here. I think that's all I got. Yeah, I, I think this movie is worth seeing, uh, particularly if you just want to see two really solid villainous performances. But just be prepared for some tonal issues, is what I would say. Yeah, they try way too hard to try to make her the protagonist. And like, if they just make her a straight up villain, it would have been fine. But they were just they. they so many instances in the film, like they're pushing you, like think that she's some sort of anti-hero. I'm like, no, no, she's not. Yeah, I mean, I, I compare, you know, I've already compared this to a Wall Street film, but the other comparison would be like a mafia film where you need somebody to latch onto who's not fully corrupted by all of this yet, and I don't think there's anybody like that in this film. So that that I think is something that is lacking there. But so criticism aside, Roseman Pike is fantastic, and Peter yeah, Dinklage is fantastic. Good. So. Like, if you like those actors, go see the film. Some pretty solid side characters here. Uh, Chris Messina and Diane Weist, I very much enjoyed. Um, Isaiah Whitlock Jr. playing the dopey family court judge. Obviously, he can do work like this in his sleep. Uh, we, we loved him in the fi- into Five Bloods last yeah, year. but uh, for sure. Um, this is uh, not his best character. <laughs> well, I, it seems like, that ju- like he was based off of the judge in the uh, April Parks case. Yeah, and they needed that guy to be a dopey fuck, so that makes perfect sense. So, um, yeah, it fits the subject matter. Um, yeah, that's about all I got. Oh, uh, Nicholas Logan plays Alexei Ignatiev, and he's he's kind of just a, a weird goofball of a mobster. Um, I think there's a similar character in the uh, HBO series Barry. Um, a goofy mobster usually lands pretty well for me. Like, oh, that's the fucking weird guy in the crew, but don't mess with him. <laughs> Um, that's, uh, anyway, quick shout out to him. So Daniel, any final thoughts about the film? You know, I didn't really like it, but at the same time, it had some good performances and it brings to light a really serious and troubling issue. Yeah. I'll, I'll put the uh, link, uh, the link to the uh, Rachel Aviv article in the show notes. Definitely check this out, uh, and be prepared to be righteously outraged if this is not an issue. Oh boy. That article I read. So I couldn't sleep. Uh, that, that night I woke up at like one thirty after going to bed. Wow, this movie touched you that much. That you no, no, sleep. it wasn't because of the movie. It wasn't it. because of the movie. I guess like work anxiety and stuff. And so I, I, I was awake and I started reading that article because I remember you, I remember that you had tweeted, uh, uh, to, to David Chen. So I looked that up. I looked at your tweet and I saw you linked that article, which I haven't read before. So I read that article at like one thirty, and I was just like seething with rage. Holy shit. Yeah. 
Yeah, I remember. Uh, I I read that when I was uh, when I was out eating a fast food dinner with uh, one of my kids when it around about when it first came out, and uh, before it, before the uh, before the kid was able to talk much yet. So me reading uh, me reading at the table was a routine occurrence then. And I remember I just kind of sat there reading through the entire fairly lengthy article while we were sitting there eating tacos, and I just couldn't believe it. So <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Uh, yeah, it's it's an outrage, but uh, this film is is fairly riveting. I was I was engrossed by it. I would not say I was entertained by it because it's not a movie you come away with a joyful feeling about humanity from. But uh, definitely, I would say worth checking out. I got I got one last one last thing to say. Well, man, hashtag free Britney. Hashtag free Britney, indeed. You and I did che- uh, both check out the uh, the Framing Britney Spears documentary from New York Times Presents on Hulu. Um, definitely worth checking out as well if you uh, want to experience some righteous fury about guardianship uh, gone awry. And we will link to that in the show notes as well. All right. Well, if you have any feedback on our discussion of I Care A Lot, feel free to email us at filmwonknet at gmail.com. Thank you for tuning in at filmwonk.net, and have a good night.